Welcome to Know Your Options, the Measured Risk Podcast. The ultimate guide to navigating the volatile nature of the markets while managing risk purposefully. Join us as we challenge the theory behind traditional asset allocation and dive into the mathematics of investing. Whether you are a seasoned investor or just starting out, this podcast offers valuable insights and practical advice to help you make informed decisions and manage your money wisely. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's dive into the world of calculated risks together. Hello, everybody. This is Larry Kriesmer, my partner, Bernard Sarofsky. We're here today with Michael Gary, who's the founder and CEO of Yardley Wealth Management. And we're going to welcome him to the show right now, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome, Mike. And you know, Mike, just to get things off to the start, tell us a little bit about your journey into the financial advisory business. Sure. So I was working as a lawyer and I hated every second of every day. And at one of the networking events that the law firm made us go to, I met a recruiter from Merrill Lynch who told me my MBA and law degrees would be very marketable as a financial advisor. Turns out she was right. Um, my, you know, I, I hesitated to leave being a lawyer full time because I had just graduated from law school a few years ago, incurred a lot of student debt. And, um, you know, I'd worked at two firms, but not for very long. And, uh, really wasn't sure. My wife and I took a long walk on the beach and thought, well, in either case, I could have an okay to an amazing career and figure we'd give it a try. And uh, I am so, so, so very happy that that we did. That was so a recruiter, a, a recruiter at Merrill Lynch got you off, off and running. That's a, that's a great story. You know, yeah. Go ahead, Larry. Well, was it something you did right out of college or like two or three years or how long, how long from? No, so I didn't go back to law school until four years after college. So I was 29 when I graduated from law school. And then two weeks later, we had our oldest daughter. Um, and so I worked for two law firms into, I would be like uh, August or September of 98. And then I started with Merrill at the end of September 98. So coming up on 25 years. Wow. Crazy. Time flies. So you got that was, right when we had the sort of the first uh, bludging with the tech bubble bursting, right? That was yes. your introduction yes. to financial services. So, I, yeah, so I started in 98, but I didn't like, I hate these terms, go into production until like August or September of 99. And so, you know, four or five months in, you know, the market tops. And so I'm, I'm opening accounts and transferring accounts in and doing what I'm supposed to. And, you know, every Tuesday they'd show you your numbers and every, uh, you know, you'd open an account and then that what the existing account, the value would go down. It was hard and humbling uh, to say the least. It wasn't, wasn't as bad as being a lawyer though. So (laughs) (laughs) Our experience was uh, actually the the whole namesake of the firm and the development of the firm was kind of forged out of that whole tech bubble Um, at some point. Maybe we'll talk about this off camera at some point. But so back to you, you've been in this business for a good long time now and you've raised uh, a lot of assets. You transitioned out of being, let's say, a a production type of person to an advisory relationship. Yeah. But tell me what what frustrates you about our business or our, our environment right now? Well, one of the things that that always frustrates me about this business is like what I what I just said about production, uh, in that that so many advisors out there are so 
sales centric, let's say, and, you know, and not enough care about like relationships and actually doing, doing right by clients, you know, and, and trying to learn all they can and use whatever tools are, are available. You know, there's a lot of people in our industry that are just asset gatherers. They're good at getting people to sign on the line. And uh, that, that's hard because I, I think that the rest of us who really try to do a good job for our clients, you get lumped in with them. You know, I think people, you know, it's, that know that I'm a financial advisor are just like waiting for me to sell them something. And it, it does bother me. And that some of like the, the biggest names in our industry is because they, they have like magnetic personalities and they attract people to them. So that, that's, that's an endless source of a uh, little bit disappointment and frustration, but it is what it is, I guess. So it's kind of that whole idea about a preconceived notion of what an advisor might be, not what an advisor actually is. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people don't know what we actually do. And, you know, I think it's so straightforward what you know we do. We listen to them, try to find out what they're trying to do and see what they have and see what, what changes, if any, are necessary and, and help them make them. So it's not all that complicated to start anyway. Um, right. But yeah, there's a lot of, lot of preconceived notions that are unfortunately... Well, uh, right, I guess, in some ways, but not right for those of us who, who really do try to do a good job. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, yeah. best interest, to, you know, the legislation uh, that's been coming through to try and sort of tiptoe up to the fiduciary standards that we have in our industry as an RIA. But, you know, obviously, whenever there's a pr- product company being sold, there's just going to be no way to necessarily say, well, there's some other product that's better. Right. <laughs> Or different, um, right? Again, you know, this whole podcast. Of, go ahead. Wait, I was going to say when we have people come in and we talk about the fiduciary standard, I think most of them really do think if they haven't worked with an advisor before, they would just expect that whatever financial professional would put their interests first. And you know, I say like, unfortunately, the vast majority do not have that standard. Yeah, and 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 some have it sometimes. Like why? <laughs> How can you have a duty of loyalty and good faith sometimes? Like, how do, how is that a thing? Right. Or up until the point that it benefits you a little bit more than the other things. So you need to go ahead and scale that way. (laughs) Yeah. We have a philosophy of, you know, take care of the clients and everything else will take care of itself. Yeah. Yeah. I I wholeheartedly believe that. Yeah. What, What is your vision for some of the changes that you'd like to see in the industry? Well, some things are good, right? I think that there are some, uh, you know, there are steps like it, it's in some colleges now have financial planning programs uh, and there are some firms where an advisor can come in and actually learn how to be an advisor without having to worry first about how they're going to get business. So I think those are, those are good changes. You know, unfortunately yeah. they're, they're kind of small changes and it's going to take some time for those to, to really, take hold. You know, there aren't a lot of financial planning programs and some of the ones that, that are there don't really have a lot of requirements. You know, it's a, it's a few courses and it's not, not really like what you would need to know or to learn. Um, and then it, it's hard, you know, like a lot of firms are one person, one advisor firms where the, the having the resources to spend that time to train the, the next generation is a big commitment and sacrifice. So I, I don't yeah. know how it gets solved, but those are things that, that are giving me some hope and enthusiasm for the future. Yeah, yeah I, I personally have this kind of zealous 
appeal to try and get more education at the high school level. I don't know why they don't have some kind of course on, you know, basic basics of, of financial planning or basics of finances, even at the high right. school level as a mandatory course. It's a marvel that sometimes at the lack of just minimalist financial knowledge, even amongst highly educated people, it's, right. it is, it is pretty, pretty crazy thing. Is there anything about your business or about the industry to, to speak of that kind of keeps you up at night or anything about, you know, obviously not family related, but more kind of business and or the industry itself? Yeah. So for me, it's finding the next generation of uh, advisors. You know, I'd had a young woman here for a couple of years and we had to part ways last week. And, you know, it, it is hard to find somebody with the right um, skill set and attitude. And uh, yeah, that, that's that's the hard thing. Like, I really don't want to wind up selling this business to some roll up firm in 10 years or 15 years. I really want it to, to go on, you know, because we have relationships with clients that, uh, you know, I had that epiphany during the, the pandemic that, you know, most of the clients are older than me. I'm 55. And, you know, there are a lot of clients in their 60s, 70s, even 80s. And if I just sell out one day, 10 years from now, that might be nice financially for me, but then it leaves a lot of people who are older and, and maybe, you know, it's not that easy to find a new advisor when you're 86. Um, and I, right. I really want that. So I'm going to try hard to build the next generation. And that that's the thing about, about my business that, that is, um, that, that gives me the biggest pause that, that I worry about because it, it's hard and it's something that yeah. you know, I've never done before. And, you know, and I'm not, and I'm not 26 either, you know, so um, it, yeah. it's a challenge. Well, you, you have to find somebody who has a similar mindset to you that kind right. of says, all right, put, put the client first and we'll, you know, everything else will take care of itself kind of ideal, which is, yeah, it's difficult. I mean, oftentimes you're better off starting out with somebody who might be a little more fresh than, than trying to retrain someone to, to shift their right. mindset. Right. Um, that, that's that's good. Sorry, Larry, you had something you wanted to mention. Well, let's talk a little bit about your portfolio recommendations. Do you use outside managers? Do you build your own or some combination of the two? Yeah, so we we use mutual funds and ETFs uh, primarily from two different companies, um, uh, DF Dimensional and Avantis. You know, so our invest, investment philosophy is um, you know asset allocations, low cost, tax efficient. <laughs> Uh, try to do those things and, and maybe, you know, have a, a small tilt towards small in value and other things that that those guys make think make sense. So I, I use their help in building like portfolio, you know, basic portfolios for clients and use, use their tools. You know, I'm not a CFA and I, I had a finance undergraduate degree that is very, very old now. So I, I, I take the advice where I, where I could get it. So and from a risk management perspective, um, do they provide tools that allow you to kind of estimate what potential drawdown risk there may be or and what type of potential return might exist? Or Yeah, so they have tools for that. And then we use the tools in our, in our software, you know, and, and those are OK. Um, you know, I, I think that that risk is one of the biggest things we struggle with, you know, for me, for a lot. You know, a lot of the way that I'll, I'll work with risk is to make sure clients have cash, you know, in, in insured savings or in treasury, something that's got a guarantee, you know, outside of the portfolio that we manage. And then within the portfolio, make sure that, that they really are OK with uh, a lot of those ups and downs. And, um, yeah, it, it's a struggle. Mm, yeah, uh, but I think that's. That's been the struggle of uh, sort of our observation, and, the, and and that's that really is the primary thing because ultimately, 
the markets are going to go up over time. We know they're going to go up over time and we're going to be the only way to participate is to be in them. Um, right. I also know that in the short term, they can just get devastated and yes. trying to manage that kind of Herculean risk or, you know, catastrophic risk that could rear its head any time is the really, I think, where we as advisors deliver our value to our clients. And so right. It's definitely where, where we make where we make our living or earn, I guess. Yes, I, 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 mean, I remind myself of that every time we go through a, one of those periods like March of 2020, where, oh. uh, you know, it was just looking at the screen could could make you uh, nauseous. Remember, like that, that's the reason we get paid um, or, or one of the big ones anyway. Right. It's kind of to, to, to hold the hands of your clients. So, right. Right. There's been, you know, the we started out in the Wayback Machine with individual equities that, you know, brokers would advise people buying. And then we developed uh, the 1940 Act came along and we ended up with mutual funds and aggregated pool investments. And then we've uh, migrated over to ETFs where we have more, uh, at least the ability to buy and sell, whereas a mutual fund you have just once a day at the closing right. price. You know, there. What do you do? You see anything coming next? I mean, that might improve or create value there. You know, I don't know, but I like that timeline that, that you just said because it is true. You know, I I, it, I was at a firm for four and a half years after leaving Merrill, where I was for about three years, and he used a lot of individual equities. And then when I started here, we were all mutual funds, and then I'd say we're mostly ETFs now, and it just makes a lot of sense, you know, for a lot of reasons, you know, tax reasons. But yeah, I I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of talk about direct indexing. I, I don't know if that that really makes sense or not. Um, maybe in certain circumstances it, it could. If you have, you know, I guess there there's some ways that you could do portfolios now. If someone has a concentrated risk in a in a stock because of their job, you know, you could mitigate some of that risk or 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 try to to, to change that. But yeah, I'm not really sure. What what do you what are some what, what are some of the tools that what are some of the tools you've seen out there for trying to mitigate the risk in an individual position? Yeah. So like, you know, so, you know some people use options and, and we don't do that. I, I'm not familiar enough with the, the, how that marketplace works. Um, and there are like the, the dimensional Avantis have tools where you could build a portfolio um, instead of taking their, their regular um, mutual fund or ETF portfolio. They can build a, a separately managed account portfolio with, uh, you know, limiting the exposure to the industry or, or the specific securities uh, to blend it for whatever the client has. So if you have a client who's a, a big holder because of options and RSUs or whatever in J&J, let's say, you can build a portfolio that has less exposure to pharma or J&J um, using, using some of their, their tools and portfolios instead of just buying the mutual funds and like, you know, avoiding that sector or something. Right. I don't know if I'm making that make any sense or not, but. Yeah, it does. When you do business with the vendors you have now, is it directly on their platforms, or do you aggregate them through like a custodian somewhere? How do you how do you structure your business? Sure. Yeah. So we use Schwab and TD Ameritrade as our custodians. Okay. Unfortunately, that will soon just be Schwab um, around Labor Day. You have most of your business uh, at Schwab, or is it mostly at TD? You know, it's almost always been split. You know, I started when I left my last my last firm used both and uh, I started with both and 
over time, we have more accounts at TD Ameritrade, but the assets have always been just about equal. Like the, the account that Schwab have tended, the people who have had Schwab already tended to have larger accounts. And so we have fewer larger accounts at Schwab, but about the same dollar amount at both places. Yeah, interesting. So, I mean, I, my experience with Schwab has been the customer service is pretty good. Uh, that the actual sort of hands-on is is pretty pretty solid, and there's more of an entrepreneurial spirit over at TD Ameritrade and helping the yep. RIAs actually uh, affect their business. So it's been interesting to be on on both platforms as well. Yeah, uh, no, I I totally agree. You know, I'll miss the national link. You know, and I, I'll um. You know that you know they building out the APIs for the website forever, and making the improvements to the website. You know, and Schwab's website hasn't changed materially in a generation. But right. you call technical support. The Schwab reps tend to be more experienced and, and better at what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, right. there's definitely trade offs with both of them. Yeah, it'll be. We'll we'll look back at this uh, re- recording and and see whether or not this uh, merger actually you know pans out well for the end user, which is both right. us and RIAs and where we say yeah, where we yeah. sage in our thinking, or where we completely. I mean, there's, so you build your own volume. You're building allocations to these two vendors, and do you do financial planning services in addition? I, I loved your website, by the way, with the financial management and maybe a budget <laughs> kind of thrown in there. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. And I, I stole that from somebody on Twitter. Somebody on Twitter said, everybody has this holistic wealth, blah, blah, blah. People want to know, like manage my account, maybe save some money on taxes. And so, yeah, I, I saw that thought. She's absolutely right. I'm going to take that. Um, and, very natural. I, I liked it a lot. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And we, um, we are planning based, um, you know, I, we when people come in, we do a, a lot of planning um, and then update plans accordingly, really depending on on, um, you know, what the client situation needs and, and how much the, the client wants it. For some, I think they tolerate it and others like enthusiastically embrace it. But I, I think that a lot of people like the idea of like pulling everything together, you know, going through the, the, the process. Um, and I, I think for a lot of couples, I was just saying this to, to new clients the other day, I think for a lot of couples, they start to talk about big picture retirement items a little bit more you know, uh, forcefully or in a more real fashion. Because you know, a lot of people come in and say, oh, well, we don't know if we should buy another house or, or move to Florida or our son lives in another city. And I think that the planning process gets them thinking a lot more actively and they'll, they'll start the conversation. And I don't take part in like, you know, Oh, you should live here. But, but um, I think it's good to see, you know, and I think it's a, it's a great process. You know, a lot of, a lot of people go through their lives you know, just like paying the bills or buying their funds or or managing their 401k without really thinking about like an overall plan and like what they're trying to accomplish. And I, I think when when people have that, it gives them a lot of peace of mind and and a purpose. And so, we, you know, if you say, OK, well, what we're doing is we're saving in these three different buckets and we're saving this much and we kind of have an expectation of around a certain amount of return. And if we do that, then these goals in our future are more likely to happen. It makes it a lot easier. I think, you know, I I think it really, 
again, like, I guess, cause we've been doing it for so long, it doesn't seem too complicated. It's not, doesn't seem like rocket science, but the actual act of doing it, I think is really, really valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Bernard is a fan of saying, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. So <laughs> that's, right. that's, uh, that's kind of uh, key to really what we, what we do and, and trying to help people achieve goals instead of right. just into a bucket. Yeah, exactly. When, when I worked my last boss uh, and he was buying individual stocks and, you know, and it's again, another small firm like us and, with we're trying to figure out which 30 to 50 stocks clients should have he had we had to allocate a lot of resources to that and i you know i i don't know that the, that was an effective use of those resources because instead of doing that we could have been trying to to talk to people and going through their tax return and making sure they were saving enough making sure their beneficiaries were correct make sure they updated wills and estate planning documents all the things that that I think of as like the blocking and tackling of being a financial planner, a financial advisor, we didn't do because he was trying to see whether like Coke would do better than Pepsi over the next year, you know, and it, it just seemed to me like a backwards look at priorities. Yeah. But in that respect, we are, yeah, in that respect, we are completely aligned. I mean, we, uh, there is such a compelling desire for the public to be able to find somebody who has uh, will claim to be able to look at either stock re- investment reports or earnings reports or potential, you know, anything, some sort of data set, including charts and graphs and pictures and things and, and come up with some solution on what is the future going to hold. And Bernard and I threw in a towel on that actually probably back in 2005, uh, yep. probably coming out of the, uh, out of the financial crisis and really getting, not the financial crisis, but the tech bubble initially. And Great. just realized that all things considered, it's impossible to figure out what's going to happen in the future. And at least particularly yep. in the next few months, you know, it's going to be very difficult. So uh, we're Great. definitely in line there. I think the, the key is to put money away, aim it toward a goal and do your best to manage risk. But you know, there's a ton of investment choices out there. And at the same time, people feel like they maybe don't have the right choices. So it's an interesting world to be in. And so we want to create this podcast so that investors can know more about what their investment options are. And if we had basically a choice or something, if you could pick a choice, what would the perfect characteristics be of an investment strategy? I can pick the choice. So first, I guess you need to know like what the risk parameters make sense for you, right? So is this something that has an indefinite lifespan, like a, like a charity, or is it for your retirement? Is it for a shorter amount of time? Yeah, I, I, there are so many questions about risk um, that that's the hard thing. Once you figure that out, though, you know, I, I think you look for things that are like. Um, what are the return expectations compared to like the world? And then what are the costs and taxes associated with it? And so that informs a lot of our investment philosophy. You know, I think there's a lot of different ways that, that you could do things. And my approach is to spend a lot of time on the planning um, and then buy different funds that go into different asset classes that, that make sense to invest in and do that cheaply and tax efficiently to the extent that you can yeah. uh, and, and look at it, you know, like as, as a whole thing, like, so there's no, no one part of that that really like runs everything just because it's yeah. the cheapest doesn't mean it's the best. 
Just because there are no taxes doesn't mean that's the best. You need to look at everything, like like the expected returns. Maybe the volatility matters to you. And, and for some people, that, that matters a lot. For me, it doesn't matter. But, you know, I started my firm with no clients and, and really no prospects and with a wife and three little kids. So I understand that my risk tolerance is pretty high. Um, and so other people would have probably a lower. Some people have a much higher risk tolerance, but, but most people would have a lower risk tolerance. So, Mike, I have a question. What if there were an investment out there where you, where you, as the advisor, could get to kind of set the risk parameter, knowing that there would be an unlimited upside, but obviously the upside potential would be capped or not capped, but limited by the amount of downside sure. risk? That, that is that something that would be of interest to you? Sure, sure. You know, and I know there are different um, types of some of those products, but I don't I don't really know them uh, all that well anymore. And what if something like that were completely transparent and liquid? Is that something that would make it more interesting to you or kind of? It sure would. <laughs> transparent okay. and liquid? I like those. Mm-hmm. Transparent, liquid, and with, and with government protections around the bulk of the assets. Sure. All right. Well, great. Well, we've talked about you know, the industry, some of the movements and what's happened over the years. We've talked about your experience in developing your RIA and your, I guess, desire to work with clients and help them set up the goals and things. Is there anything else we should have asked that we didn't ask today? No, I, I think this was great. I love the questions and the way, the way this went. This was a very enjoyable time. Cool. Great. Well, unless there's anything else, we'll wrap it up today, uh, short and sweet, and we'll get people back into their cars or onto the next (laughs) task. And I appreciate you spending time with us today, Mike, and wish you best of luck. This interview also may contain statements that constitute endorsements of measured risk portfolios, also known as MRP. Please note that any such statements are not made by clients of MRP, but by representatives of other investment advisory firms that work with MRP. No compensation was offered or given in exchange for these statements. However, a conflict of interest exists due to the incentive to give an endorsement in the interest of a good future working relationship between the endorser and MRP.